You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. This morning, um, we're going to talk about um, what is Christian maturity? What is maturity in Christ? Um, Last week, we looked at Paul's ministry in the church, how he joyfully suffered as a steward of the gospel, proclaiming Christ, empowered by the Spirit. And what was his goal? Paul's goal was the maturity of the church. Now, there's my first foible. That one's not up on the screen. Kids, you got to fill that one on your own. The maturity of the church. Verse 28 of chapter 1. Paul says he was warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that they may, we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's his goal. As an apostle, that's what he's trying to produce. That ought to be our goal both for ourselves as we strive toward maturity, as we seek to to grow in the Lord, um, but also our goal for our church, for those around us, as we're trying to move others, encourage others toward maturity in Christ. But here's the next question. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is this maturity? If we're going to hit that target, then we need to know what we're aiming at, what we're shooting for. So that's what verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2 give us. They show us maturity in Christ, what it looks like, where it comes from. Uh, So that's what we're going to spend our time talking about this morning. So um, let me read this for us. Chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 1 to 5. Paul writes, For I want you to know, How great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Would you join me in prayer as we turn to God's word? Father, um, we need you, Lord. We long to see this kind of maturity growing, building in our own lives, growing in our church. And that is the work of your spirit. God, so we invite you to be at work in us. Father, pray that we would have hearts to hear, eyes to see, ears to listen. Lord, you know we are so often um, blind and deaf, hard of heart. God, correct us this morning where we need it. Challenge it, where, challenge us where we need it. Encourage us, strengthen us up. Lord, I pray that you would... Um, Speak by your word this morning that my words would be faithful uh, to your truth. God, if there's anything this morning um, that is not of you, um, that those words would just be lost and forgotten, um, but that your word uh, would come through clearly. 
for the glory of your name and the good of your church. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The beginning of chapter 2 marks another kind of shift in the flow of this letter. Um, chapter 1, if you remember, began with Paul's just generic kind of greeting and, and opening the letter, his prayer for them. Um, starting in verse 15, then he laid the, the theological foundation for the rest of the book, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the, the creator, sustainer of all things. He's the one uh, who will reconcile all things to God in himself. The last bit of chapter 1 there, verses 24 to 29, Paul is um, kind of describing and defending his own ministry. And then here, as we transition into chapter 2, um, he begins to write a little more directly to his readers. Uh, he also begins to address these, the, the issue of this false teaching a, a little more directly as well. well. We'll see that a little bit this morning. He's going to be a little more specific in, in the next few weeks to come. Uh, but verses 1 to 5, he's telling them of their, their, his hopes for them. This is the reason, this is his, his goal for which he is struggling and suffering for them. And the first thing we see uh, here are the signs of maturity, verses 1 and 2. The signs of maturity. Paul began with this reminder to them, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. What struggle? What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the same struggle from the end of chapter 1. He said he proclaims Christ, warning and teaching everyone to make everyone mature in Christ. And then verse 29, this is what I struggle for. I'm toiling and, and struggling. The, the word there is agon, from which we get our word agonize. He is working hard for this. That he might present everyone mature in Christ. And notice as he begins chapter 2, um, this is not just for the Colossians. It is for the Colossians. It's also for the, the Laodiceans, another town just down the road from them. And he's going to later in the letter tell them to kind of swap letters with the church in Laodicea. Let them read this letter and you read the one I sent to them. But it's not only for them. He goes on to say, all who have not seen me face to face. That's us. That's us. I mean, unless you've met Paul. Um, I haven't. Um, Paul is writing this letter to be taken to the church in Colossae and then Laodicea and then throughout the church. I think Paul's conscious of the fact the Holy Spirit is working through him and he is writing something that will far outlast his physical ministry, his own life. These words are written for us. Here in chapter 2, he gives us a little more detail. This is what I'm struggling for. This is the, the maturity that I want to see in you, church. And he lists three things, three, three signs of maturity, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, and then the doozy at the end. They would have all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So let's look at each of these in a little bit more detail. The first sign of maturity is a strong heart. A strong heart. He says, I struggle so that their hearts, our hearts, would be encouraged. Now, I think there's just linguistically and culturally, there's a couple hurdles we have to overcome there. Um, we read this, your hearts be encouraged, and, and we think that's primarily emotional. 
right? That you wouldn't feel sad. That's what it means to have your heart encouraged. That you wouldn't be overwhelmed or, or discouraged. That you would be happy. That you'd be optimistic. That's not what Paul's getting at. Um, first, the idea of heart. Uh, in, the, in the Hebrew culture and as well in the Greek um, was not necessarily the seat of emotions. They didn't think of emotions as coming from the heart like we do. Um, when they talked about emotions and feeling, they spoke of the bowels, the gut. And so they, they would talk about joy, anger, um, passion, discouragement. Those things happen in the, in the bowels. So husbands, you can try that this afternoon. I love you from my very bowels. See how that, see how that goes for you. Um, the heart... Um, is the core of the inner person. It's the core of the inner person. More, more like the way we would use mind, but I think a little bit broader than that still. Um, the heart was the center of reason, of understanding. It was the place of the will, of, of thinking and, and choosing. The fool says in his heart there is no God. He doesn't just feel that way. That's what he's reason. That's the conclusion he's come to. That's what rules his life. So, don't think of this just on an emotional level, that he doesn't want us to be sad. He's looking for something more than that. Um, and that word encouraged as well, it's not wrong, but I think it's just a little bit soft, or we would understand it a little bit soft. Um, the, the word behind that is parakaleo. Um, you might know that. It's a familiar Greek word. It's used as a, a name for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the strengthener, the helper. It literally means to, to call alongside. And the idea is not just to encourage, like, you know, they're there. Don't worry. Be positive. Um, it actually means to strengthen, to make strong, to fortify, to build up. And so, again, it's not just that you would feel better emotionally, um, but that your inner being, the core of who you are, would be strengthened, strong, firm, unshakable. That's the maturity that Paul wants to see in the church. Christian maturity is marked by inner strength. That's what he prays for, Ephesians 3, 16. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power in his, through his spirit in your inner being. The mature Christian is not weak and waffling. It's not double-minded. It's not constantly tempted and wavering. He's strong in heart. Christian maturity is marked by inner strength. Paul's agonizing over the church. He's writing this very letter with all these glorious truths of who Jesus is so that the believers who read it, including you and I, might stand firm in their conviction, having their hearts encouraged, being, being fortified and strengthened. Secondly, he says, that they would be knit together in love. Right? That your hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's the second sign of maturity. Christian maturity is loving community. Loving community. Now it's interesting to me that Paul puts these two back to back. Because in our Western culture, the way we tend to see things, um, we think of strength as independence, right? A strong person is a person who doesn't need anyone else. He can go his own way. He can do his own thing. Paul says that's immaturity. That's actually weakness. That's foolishness. 
being isolated, being able to hold your own is not maturity. The kind of maturity that Paul is struggling for in the church is that kind of inner strength that binds us together in love. The heart that is truly strengthened by the gospel is a heart that is drawn together, that loves the church, that's knit together with one another. Uh, Later in Colossians 3, verse 11, he'll say here, uh, in Christ... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Right? In Christ, all of our cultural differences, all of our social statuses or socioeconomic differences, anything else that would draw dividing lines between us, it just fades away. It becomes so unimportant, so insignificant. So I have kids and you have none. One is rich, the other is scraping by. One is married, the other is single. One is at the sunset, years of life, enjoying retirement. The other one's just coming out of college and looking for a career. One grew up in Canada with with Canadian customs and traditions. The other grew up in the Philippines with an entirely different set of traditions. Let's get really crazy here. One voted conservative, the other voted NDP. Is that okay? Right? One earns his his wages through hard labor and sweat in the sun. The other one sits in front of a computer all day or at an office building. All of these lines that that would divide us in the world at large, um, not in Christ. Not in Christ. In Christ we are united. We're united. If by the grace of God we have come to that place of, of seeing our sin, our helplessness before the Lord, trusting in Christ for his forgiveness, if we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, given this new life in Christ, that new life is so significant, it's such a radical transformation that that it overshadows all these other things. All of these other differences become so minor. The mature believer sees that. The mature believer understands our unity in Christ. He's knit together, welded together with the other believers with this bond of love. That's why we do small groups the way we do them. Um, Not as affinity groups, like we don't have a group for for the guys that like motorbikes and another group for the the computer geeks. Um, We blend them. We put them together. It's very intentional. You have old people and young people and married people and single people and and, and bring that together because we need each other. Because what unites us is Christ. Not the stage of life we're in, not the things that we're interested in, but Jesus. Jesus said, love would be the defining mark of the church. Love would be the defining mark of the church that all people would know that, that, that we are his disciples because we love one another. Francis Schaeffer um, states the same thing, but from kind of the opposite direction. He says, if an individual does not show love toward other true Christians, the world has the right to judge that he is not a Christian. The mature Christian is not hardened, rugged, individualistic. He's not reclusive, going his own way, doing his quiet own thing. He is deeply knit together with the body in love, immersed deeply in in body life. I just want to pause here 
This season that we've been through has been a challenge. It's made this rough. Those of you joining on Facebook, we are so glad that you're able to do that. We're thrilled to be able to put this together, to send this out. We love you. Um, We know there are many different reasons that you might be live streaming right now. Um, But you need to understand this is a temporary, weak, pathetic stopgap measure through this temporary season. It's not the same as gathering together. You will not get through Facebook what you get when you come with the saints to worship together, uh, physically present. That's important. That's significant. It's also why we're trying to do the, uh, the guess who's coming for a cookout. Because we need to know each other. We need to spend time together. Um, this is not just a, a social thing. There's a theological reality that we need to be growing in as we fellowship and, 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 and spend time together. Do you love the believers? Are you kind, gentle, caring toward other believers? Do you sacrifice for the needs of others? Do you see their pain as your pain? Put that the other way. Do you let others in? Do you live a life that displays your need for others? And if you say, I don't need others, you're wrong. And that proves it. That's immaturity. We do depend on one another. Are you willing to be vulnerable and open to make sacrifices, to to lay down your preferences, your desires for the sake of the body? Are you knit together in love with the church? That's what maturity looks like. That's what we're striving together for as a church. Strong hearts and loving community. Thirdly, Paul says he struggles so that the believers would reach the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So that's a mouthful. Um, Spent a lot of time just trying to work out the logic of what he's saying there. Um, Maybe we can just boil it down to this. Confidence in Christ. Assurance that is found in the, in the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, that we know who Jesus is. Do you have confidence in Christ? There are riches available to us. Like, let's not miss that. Riches. Riches of God's blessing, of hope, of joy, of peace, of, of life abundant now and into eternity. Available to us. And we attain those riches. We we lay hold of them. We experience that life through assurance of understanding and a knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Confidently understanding and knowing Jesus, the gospel. Remember chapter 1, verse 27. To them, to the the saints, to God's elect, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's get this, the, the mystery that he's speaking here, the mystery is the gospel. It's Jesus. And that doesn't mean that Jesus can't be understood or that he's he's hidden, but that it was once a mystery. 
Right? The Old Testament, it was, it was partially revealed, but it was veiled. It was, it was unclear. It wasn't fully painted picture yet. That mystery in Jesus has now been made known. In, in Christ, through the apostles, in the New Testament, the mystery is the gospel. Now, here's your warning. Some of you ran into this in the last couple of weeks. If you're going to go out for coffee with me, or if you're going to have a pastoral visit from me, a baptism interview, a membership interview, something like that. Maybe it's just the first time we got to sit down and connect and getting to know you. It is very likely you will hear this question. What is the gospel? What's the gospel? There is no question more important than that. Nothing more weighty, more significant. So pay attention, write this down. I'm giving you the answer for the exam that is to come. And not just because... I'm going to ask you, what on earth does that matter? Who cares? But someday you're going to stand before the Lord. Theoretically, he's going to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say? Where's your hope? Why should he let me into his glorious, perfect heaven, a a wretched sinner like me? How would you answer that? So Here's the gospel, the simplest way I know how to put it, um, it is the gospel in four words. Four words. God, man, Christ, response. Lock it into your memory. Rehearse it to yourself. Teach it to your kids. I like to write it on my kids' fingers. God, man, Christ, response. So there's God. God created this world. He's the creator, owner of everything. And he is holy and perfect and just and righteous. Then there's man. We were created by God to worship him. To find our life and our our joy in him. But we sinned. We rebelled against God. We, We walked away from him. And for our sin, we deserve hell. So God, man, Christ, Jesus God himself, born in human flesh, lived the perfect life with no sin, and he died on the cross. Now get this, this is so important. He died taking on himself the wrath of God that I deserved. My punishment placed on him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Finally, response. It calls for a response. It's not just truth. It's truth that requires action. And there are two responses, two things that have to happen, repentance and faith. Repentance means to turn around. right? Turn from sin. Admitting, yes, I am a sinner. I have been living for, for self and, and, and the things of this world, disobeying God, and leave that old life behind. I'm done seeking after those things. And then faith is just the, if you turn from sin, where do you turn to? It means to trust, to trust in Jesus, to seek after him. That my only hope of being saved is not in anything I do, not in my life, not in impressing God, not that my good deeds might outweigh my bad, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. God, man, Christ, response. That's the mystery. That's the wonder of the gospel. And though in one sense it is so very simple, the riches of the gospel are beyond measure. Beyond measure. 
The depths of the riches of the grace of God contained in God's word displayed on the cross is unsearchable. It's like a never-ending mountain range that will never be fully explored. There's always another new peak. There's always a new waterfall, a new alpine lake. And every time you come to the new summit, there's a range going beyond. And yes, we're saved just simply trusting in Jesus. So simple, even a small child shouldn't be turned away. And yet the riches of that truth are marveled at and wondered at by by scholars and and wise men. They only grow fuller and clearer, will only be truly experienced as we grow in that confidence of understanding and the knowledge of that gospel. As we grow deeper in the knowledge of this great mystery. So never stop exploring. Never stop considering, never stop thinking deeply about the death of Christ on my behalf and what that means for me. How does that change? What does this new life in Christ mean? The way that I face every situation, every relationship, every choice, every question is informed by the the wonder of the gospel. That's what Colossians chapter 3 is going to drill down on. We'll, we'll get there uh, in the fall. But, but verses 1 to 3 in chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the things of earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That changes everything. And, and Paul's going to drill down on the specifics. What does that mean for my sinful desires? What does that mean for for how I love the church? What does that mean in my marriage and for my parenting and for my workplace? It all gets changed by the gospel. As you grow in, in understanding and knowledge of who God is and who Jesus is, and it transforms your life more fully, more completely, you're going to live more and more in the riches of that truth. That's maturity. It's the the cruciformed life, the cross-shaped life. That's what Paul is struggling for in the church. That's what we ought to be striving after. Hearts that are fortified, strengthened in the truth. Lives that are knit together with other believers, the bond of love and growing in the riches that are found in in the assurance of understanding and the and the knowledge of Christ. Those are the signs of maturity. How do we grow in those things? Are you pursuing those things? Practically working toward them in your day-to-day life? Are you you working toward a, a heart that is strong and secure, deep, loving community in the church? Ever growing knowledge and understanding of Christ? Then Paul unfolds in verses 3 and 4 the source of maturity. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? Here's the the source of maturity. Now, if you've been paying attention, the answer should be pretty obvious right now. It's not a secret. But Paul's not content with that. He's going to double down here. He wants to make it so painfully obvious without a question. Remember the Colossian church was being harassed by these different heretics, these false teachers. 
Some of them were, were pulling them away from, from the truth. And, and Paul is going to begin to specifically address that. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, In whom in, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So he states it positively and negatively. Um, Where does this maturity come from and where does it not come from? Christian maturity, reaching all the riches of what God has for us, comes from Christ. From the assurance of understanding of the, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Because in him, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And, and he's, he's using this language very intentionally. Um, Paul's a, a very clever writer. The idea of hidden knowledge was very significant in the heresy that was brewing that would grow into what we call Gnosticism. Um, Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, being knowledge. It was all built around this idea of hidden knowledge. That we have this secret knowledge. It's not a knowledge you can get to by studying or learning. It's this higher spiritual knowledge that we have and you don't. And so you need to, you need to follow us. And, and, and if you don't have this higher knowledge and you're not experiencing the fullness of, of what God has. And Paul's playing with their own words saying, oh, it's hidden, all right. You want to talk about hidden knowledge? Yeah, all of the, the wisdom and knowledge are hidden. They're hidden in Christ. He's using their own words, almost mocking them here with it. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All of God's blessings, all of God's faithfulness, all of God's covenant kindness flows out of Jesus. Jesus is the fountain from which all of God's blessings flow. The reservoir of the riches, of the blessings and grace, the kindness of God. Make the the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans put together look like a mud puddle in the dirt. It's nothing. That's the size of God's love and kindness, and, and yet the faucet through which they flow is singular. There's one way. There's one way to tap in. The way to the riches of God is only through Christ. And of course, of course it is. I mean, how could it be any other way? You remember who this Jesus is? You remember from from chapter 1, verses 15 and 20? Let me just remind us of what he's just written. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of the cross. You think you're going to come to God's blessings some other way than that, Jesus? Not a chance. Not a chance. This is everything. He is the pinnacle of of all of history. He's the focal point of everything God has been doing from the beginning of time until now. 
All of God's cookies are in one cookie jar. And it's Christ. John 10.10. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life abundant. John 17.3. Now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So why then? Why are we so foolishly adamant to go looking other places? Why do we consistently pull away from him, prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. That's what these false teachers are doing. Oh, you want full life? Abundant life? I mean, Jesus is good. That's a good start. I'm, I'm glad you have that little gospel figured out, but there's, there's something else. There's more. You want God's fullest blessing. You need this higher hidden knowledge. Not only were they holding up this idea of the the hidden knowledge, it seems they were pushing for legalism, observance of the law. You have to jump through these hoops, check all these boxes. You need to live this way in order to get to God's goodness. They were seeking after visions and, and ecstatic experiences. They called for the worship of angels and other spiritual beings. And so with these false teachers in mind, Paul says in verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Don't be distracted from Jesus. Don't get pulled off course. Don't, don't for a second think that there's some other target that we ought to be running after. Find the language of Jeremiah 2.13 so helpful. Um, this is the battle that I see in my own heart with my own sinfulness. The Lord says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the Lord uses these, these two metaphors The first is a a fountain of living water, cool, fresh, clear, abundant, and a broken cistern. A cistern was, in a dry climate, you would would dig out a basin in the rock. And you would try to collect rainwater in this basin that would hold it. And sometimes it would be months between rains. The problem is, At best, that water in that basin would quickly become warm and stagnant, would grow algae on top. Maybe an animal would fall in and die and your water would become putrid. But worst of all, if the rock that you dug your basin in was cracked, the water would leak out. You would have nothing. And the results could be catastrophic. I don't know about you, but I know what that feels like in my heart. That so aptly describes the battle that I feel. There's a, a fountain of living water in Christ flowing fresh and clear. And I am so easily pulled away by my sinful heart to try to find life elsewhere. Try to find joy, meaning, purpose in the, in the things of this world. Time and time again, they prove to be broken cisterns, promising life and joy and just delivering death and pain. It's delusional. And here's the danger. It's not always obvious. It's not always obvious. Paul warns the Colossians against being deluded. And that's a harsh word. And so we easily think, I'm not delusional. 
I'm not stupid. I'm not going to be deluded. I would know if I was that far off, right? Well, the, the word behind that is, is interesting. Um, Paralogizomai, it means beside logic. It's a, it's a parallel logic. And that's the reason it's dangerous. Right? The, the, the reason that false teaching is dangerous is because it looks true. It doesn't look like false teaching. It looks good. Paul warns them of being deceived and misled, not by nonsense, not by ridiculousness, but by plausible arguments. Other translations have fine-sounding arguments, persuasive reasoning, arguments that sound reasonable. They're enticing. That's why people get pulled into them. And yes, often you stand back, you look at it, kind of with cold objectivity, yeah, it's pretty clear. That's off base. The folly can be seen for what it is. But, but when you're in the thick of it, when you're surrounded by voices persuasively pulling you, enticing you, a whole culture that begins to lean one direction, it, it all sounds very reasonable. There are so many preachers and authors out there who are so persuasive. Use fine-sounding words. They're so passionate and, and moving, and, 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 and it's so easy to get wrapped up in it. It's easy to just love it before you stop and think about it. And once you love it, you don't want to think about it. I don't want to criticize it. I'm enjoying this. Thank you very much. We have to be critical. We have to be skeptical. And, and, and I would say, especially, especially of the most gifted and enticing. Some of the best preachers today get overlooked and discarded because they're seen as boring. It's just boring. They have nothing new to say. They aren't charismatic and, and winsome speakers who leave their listeners starry-eyed and enamored by their great wisdom. They just, what? Preach Christ and Him crucified. They're just telling that same old, old story. All they have to offer is that same old fountain of living water. Other speakers, other authors, they have, they have these new, fresh things to say, things I haven't heard before. They have pizzazz, they, they tickle the ears with, with lofty wisdom, with new ideas, new ways of seeing things. The only problem is it's a broken sister. There's no water there. There's no life there. What's your filter? What's your grid? My family moved out to the country when I was about eight years old. And on the corner of the property was an old uh, abandoned sand pit. Massive hills of, of rocks and gravel and sand. And, and, and laying around with these big steel grates. So these cross hatches of thick, heavy wires and, and different sized holes. And they would take a, a scoop out of the ground filled with everything from the pure, fine sand to the large rocks. And they would pour it through the grate. And like a sieve, a strainer, all the big rocks would, would bounce out and be cast aside. And only the pure, fine sand comes through. What's your grid? What's your filter? How do you guard your mind and your heart? Is your grid what makes you feel good? Those are the things I listen to. And, and let's just be honest, this often happens so subconsciously, right? If you're not doing this intentionally, we're doing this without even thinking about it. 
I'm just drawn to. I just keep going back to that because it makes me feel good. It makes me happy. I'll take it. Or is your grid that it's plausible? It sounds reasonable. It just, it makes sense to me in the moment. Listen, the grid of the mature Christian is the true gospel. That's our grid. Is it rooted in Christ? Is it founded in the gospel? You're looking for that. Just start asking some questions. Does this person talk more about himself or about his reader or about Jesus? What's he pointing to? What's he writing about? When they talk about humanity, are they telling me how great I am? Pointing me to confidence in myself, building me up in me? Or are they talking about sinfulness and weakness? Pointing you to the confidence in Christ. Willing to offend you that you might not trust in yourself, but trust in Him. Are they carefully drawing truth from Scripture? Handling God's Word with precision and and respect? Or are they just speaking from their own wisdom? Just saying things as if they were true. Maybe, maybe touching off a few kind of misused verses. Pull one in from here and one in from there. Without really digging in. Without drawing truth from God's word. Some of those are going to be pretty obvious. Right? You look at it. It's clear. Um, but I've talked to people who claim to be followers of Christ. And, and yet are very intrigued by Reiki or healing crystals. You go, hold on a second. Eastern meditation, that's what's really getting me through these days. Really? I mean, either all things are by, through, and for Christ, and the gospel is true, or the world is filled with mystical energy flowing here and there, and you have energy centers that need to be aligned, and you can heal the body that way, but it's one or the other. You can't have both. They don't fit. And you say, I was skeptical too, but it works. Yeah, that's not my grid for truth. Not a pragmatist. I'm not just looking for whatever works. Demons have great power. I don't trust them. What's your grid? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. In him we have what is sufficient for life and godliness. The entire worldview that makes sense of Reiki and healing crystals just runs completely counter to to the worldview that has Christ as creator. They, They don't go together. But other times, the difference is less obvious. Other times, it's tricky. It might be a preacher that that uses the Bible, that talks about God's blessings, that uses language that you're familiar with, but the foundation is just just so slightly off. He's using Christ and Scripture, but he's building his own thing rather than submitting to Christ and Scripture and building the Lord's kingdom. It's a big reason why I wanted to, to get this library going. So that you would be exposed to to books and resources and authors that you can trust. That you can listen to. Now, no human author gets our full trust, right? 
No human author gets it 100% right. I've got some favorite authors that I will go back to time and time again. Um, But I have my differences with them. Not that I'm anyone special. I just have places where I think they kind of miss God's word and we ought to expect that. The greatest theologians of history have had that, that wart on the end of their nose that everyone can see except themselves. So we always are looking back to God's word. Always judging by the gospel, judging by scripture. Because that's the the source of true maturity. It's Christ and Christ alone. So we have these signs of maturity. We have the source of maturity. Finally, verse 5, we see the strength of maturity. Paul ends on a positive note, a word of encouragement. He says this in verse 5, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Remember, he's not met this church yet. He's in prison, not able to be with them physically, but he's, he's with them in spirit. Today we'd say, my heart is with you. He's rejoicing and he's, he's praising God that even though these, these false teachers are pulling at him and, and, and poking at him and trying to get them off course, um, they have not yet su- succeeded. They're still holding firm. No doubt um, Paul is using this as a bit of an encouragement as well, right? Like you're, you're doing good. You're holding firm. Keep holding firm. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't be pulled off. And the two words he uses here are, are both kind of military terms. Your good order and your firmness in the faith. It's like a battalion of soldiers with, with discipline and order and, and structure. Each one in his place, each soldier holding his ground. They're firm. Their defenses are are strong. Notice what they're firm in. They're firm in their faith in Christ, right? That's their foundation. They're trusting him. They're they're holding to the gospel. Think of the Roman soldiers as they would stand. Kids, you have a picture of this at the bottom of your fill-in. They called it phalanx warfare, and they would lock together. Shoulder to shoulder, their shields up, locked together. The second row would come in and their shields would go above and they became this impermeable, moving fortress. It was so powerful. They were undefeatable. The church ought to be like that human fortress. Strengthened in heart, knit together in love, planted firmly in the understanding and the knowledge of the gospel. Undefeatable. And don't forget, we have enemies, right? The church is under attack, always will be. We are in the middle of a spiritual war. The world and the devil will assail us. They will attack with great force, with cunning deceitfulness. They will try to to break our ranks. Spiritual warfare is not some strange, ethereal, way out there demon thing. It's a fight that we're in every day. It's a fight for the truth of the gospel. It's a fight for believing that Christ is who he says he is. Not getting pulled away, not getting hit by by doubt and being misled. The main weapon of our enemy that we fight against is lies, is plausible arguments and lies. Only Christian maturity 
anchored in and holding to the gospel will prevail. And yet some of our members are weak. Some can maybe at times barely stand. They're held up by the stronger, that bond of love. Arm in arm, standing on the gospel, our feet planted firmly in him, Christ will build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We can have confident assurance. We can have absolute hope as we move forward. That's the strength of maturity. That's the picture of this healthy church. But notice once again, we need each other. This isn't an individualistic effort. There's no lone wolves here. It's every man helping, encouraging his brother. It's every woman looking out for her sister, pulling one another up. It's admitting our weaknesses because we all are weak at different times in different ways. And it's not just firmness. It's not just stability. It's stability of the faith in Christ, in Christ alone. He's our anchor. He's our foundation. This is what Paul is struggling to see produced in the church. This is what he prayed for back in chapter 1. This is what we all together ought to be striving for. This is what the elders of your church here are are so desperate to see growing more and more. Maturity in the faith, strong hearts, knit together in love, standing firm in the faith. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so weak. Lord, we are so lacking in what we ought to be. We are great sinners, but you are a great Savior. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to grow in these things, Lord, that our hearts would be strengthened. Lord, I pray for those who are weak and and downcast and wavering and doubting this morning, that you would build them up by your spirit, that you would bring another brother, another sister alongside them to to help them plant their feet in the truth of the gospel. God, I pray that we'd be knit together in love, Lord, that we would not be um, going through this Christian life, each in our own bubble, just kind of brushing shoulders on Sunday morning, but that our lives would be bound together through the week, through our lives, that there would be deep, meaningful, loving community, that Sunday morning would just be the overflow, the rejoicing of our unity as we gather together. God, help us to grow in our understanding, our knowledge of Christ, that we would be rooted in the truth of your word, that Christ would be the the source of our life, the source of our joy and our hope and our, our maturity, all grounded in him, God, that we would have strength as a church to stand against the attacks of this world and so much more than that, to advance the kingdom of God, knowing that the gates of hell will not stand against us because it's not us, it's you. It's you who build your church and you will be victorious for the glory of your name. God, we are so eager to see it happening. Would you be at work in us, we pray in Jesus' name.